Welcome to Growing Home, the podcast that helps you take care of the place that means the most to you, your home. I'm your host, Terry Therian, alongside your co-host, Len Giddix. Welcome back to another episode of the Growing Home podcast. And today we've got probably one of our most informative podcasts we've had yet. I'll tell you what, I can't believe uh, this guy. I mean, what a background and a wealth of knowledge. On this episode, we interviewed Dr. Ryan Yamka. And we reached out to him and it's based on our need for more information. And this is all related to the concerns a lot of our consumers had we had about the diet-associated dilated cardiomyopathy. And that, you know, for short is DCM. And Dr. Yamka goes more into that in the interview. You know, over the past year, this concern had, you know, really hit the headlines. A lot of pet owners were concerned about it. We did as much reading as we could. We read studies all the way back to the 1980s when dilated cardiomyopathy in pets first came on in cats and we had read through as much as we could but we really needed an expert to come in and help us understand it more and get us to that next level and synthesize all of this information to really get to you know what does this really mean for our pets and where is the fda at with their investigation so we we reached out to somebody with an extensive background being dr yamka and he was super gracious to come up and talk with us for an hour. Yeah. And as not being a pet owner, I was surprised at the conclusions that he came up with. I mean, just surprised. What was really great was he has the perspective of working independently as a consultant in the pet food industry, but also internally for a number of different companies mm-hmm. with all a different approach to pet nutrition. And he's got a great perspective of what it takes to one, formulate than to produce right. a quality pet food product. And then how those companies have to work with the regulators and how the regulators are involved in monitoring the mm-hmm. safety of both our pets and mm-hmm. the pet owners. But before we get into that, we have this episode's winner. That's right. And there's always a winner in every episode. Every episode has a winner for the Mackey's Grab Bag. So this episode's winner is... Donnie from Coventry. Oh, Donnie, look, you are such a lucky guy. Let me tell you. What have we got for Donnie, Terry? We have the 2020 edition of the Farmer's Almanac. And and Len. We have an interview coming up on that, don't we? We do. We have one in the queue uh, with Peter Geiger, the editor of the Farmer's Almanac. So it'll be just fitting. The Almanac just released. Peter, who we've gotten to know, sends us uh, our annual copy, you know, right during the first week of the release. It's like Christmas every September. It is. The little package shows up and we feel like we're in the know. Oh, yeah. We're we're important. (laughs) A short period of time before everybody else gets their hands on it. But that was also a great interview and you have that coming up. So, Donnie, congratulations on your 2020 edition of the Farmer's Almanac. It's the orange and green cover. The only Um, one to get. It is the only one to get. And you'll know why once you listen to that interview. So for this episode, stay tuned. And we hope this helps bring some light to the concerns around dilated cardiomyopathy and our interview with Dr. Ryan Yamka. So Dr. Ryan Yamka, welcome to the Growing Home Podcast. Thank you. Great to be here. Awesome. So before we get into our deep dive about pet food and canine nutrition, could you share with us a bit about your background and your professional experience? Sure. So I've been in the pet food industry for a little over 20 years. Uh, that includes my master's and PhD in canine nutrition. Then I was also an uh, employee for Hills Pet Nutrition. I worked in R&D and product development. Uh, during my time there, they've been granted roughly 50 patents. Uh, I've done about 70 peer-reviewed articles also have co-authored a couple of book chapters in Small Animal Clinical Nutrition 5. Uh, from there, I worked for Hearts Mountain Corporation for a couple of years, and then uh, Blue Buffalo. I was senior vice president, R&D, quality assurance, and regulatory affairs uh, before and after they went public. 
After that, I started my own consulting business called uh, Luna Science and Nutrition, and most recently co-founded Guardian Pet Food Company. Some of the other credentials that come along with me is I'm a fellow with the American College of Nutrition, which focuses on the human nutrition side of things. I'm also a diplomat with the American College of Animal Sciences, which obviously focuses on the animal side of things. I've also, in 2011, won the Corbin Animal Biology Award, which is the highest award you can win in the Society for Animal Sciences. And most recently this year, I'm one of the recipients of the Pet Age Icon Award. Wow. Congratulations. Thank you. I actually just saw that this week when I was reading that issue that they came out with where they named all the icons. Hopefully they didn't have my picture because I have a face for radio, not for TV. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) And and then uh, also I I write uh, articles for Pet Food Industry Magazine, which the topics are debunking myths and misconceptions in pet food, mainly focusing on you know, what's in the press, what's fact, what's fiction, also tearing apart puffery marketing claims versus real claims and things of that nature. So if anybody's interested in that, uh, there's about 20 articles on petfoodindustry.com. Uh, you just follow the blog article area and you look for debunking myths and misconceptions, and all those articles are free. You don't have to sign up to read any of them. Great. So as of today in the recording of this podcast, we're just about a year into the FDA's investigation into the link with canine diets and dilated cardiomyopathy or, or DCM. Would you first start by helping us understand, you know, what is DCM and what exactly the FDA is investigating? Sure. So DCM stands for dilated cardiomyopathy. And without getting into the specifics of what it is, um, it's a type of heart disease. And usually the symptoms and signs that you see with it is coughing, lethargy, and it's going to be diagnosed if properly diagnosed. Uh, via ultrasound, EKGs. Uh, They might do a blood panel to see if it's taurine-related or not. But it is something that if a dog has it, they have to go through a battery of tests to confirm it. It's a disease that is prevalent, but when I say it's prevalent, it's 0.0007% of the dog population. So even though you might hear that 500 dogs have had it recently. If you look Mm -hmm. at the population of dogs in the U.S., it's not even close to that percentage that are out there, Uh, never mind being fed grain-free or or anything else. It's it's not even a hiccup. You know, traditionally, most veterinarians wouldn't be looking for or, or diagnosing for it, and it is associated in certain breeds of dogs, generally your larger breeds, although there are some short or smaller breeds that would have the issue as as well. But traditionally, you would see it in larger breed dogs. So then how did the FDA become attuned to DCM in the breeds? What happened was there was a study out of uh, Davis, I believe, where they looked at golden retrievers because supposedly there's been an uh, uptick in incidence with a cardiologist out there, which if he is a specialist, you would expect there to be an uptick if people were referring to them because not very many animal clinics have ultrasounds. Um, gotcha. So if he went from five to 10, that, that would be an uptick. You know, we're not talking, you know, went from five to thousand. And so from there, they ran a study with golden retrievers. And keep in mind, they never did any genetic testing or anything of that nature. They simply looked at what foods they were eating. Unfortunately for them, they came up with anecdotal conclusions saying it must be grain-free related. Uh, It's important to point out that the grain-free foods they were eating were not consistent. And so there might have been one Akana, one Blue Buffalo, one whoever, one whoever, one whoever. Um, It wasn't even consistent in that study. Mm -hmm. So to draw that conclusion from a scientific standpoint, and obviously writing peer-reviewed papers and also reviewing and accepting and rejecting them for journals, you know, at best it was a case study and nothing to draw a conclusion from. If anything, it would set the precedent or hypothesis out there that you should actually go run a controlled scientific study to demonstrate if that's truly the case or not. Unfortunately, certain people out of a university, uh, 
up north from us, got ahead of it and decided to coin the acronym BEG for boutique, exotic, and grain-free because that's, those were the foods that showed up in there, which if you think about most grain-free foods, you know, you're not going to see, you know, Prina Dog Chow do it or Old Roy's do it because, frankly, you know, they, they're cheaper brands and they can't afford to make them grain-free. But unfortunately, based off of the conclusions that they drew and they started pushing through the veterinary community without data to support it, the BEG train left the station and and nobody questioned it you know as a scientist nutritionist the question i would have asked was what most veterinarians or people in my field ask is okay what's the data to support that nutrient a works to support immune system Um, well the flip should have been asked here is what's the data that really supports your conclusion and there was no data Um, unfortunately they got to the edge of the cliff uh, we're at the edge of the cliff, and they never asked, why am I at the edge of the cliff? They just jumped off Yeah. Um, where they should have actually challenged the data, and especially veterinarians from a scientific way of thinking should have really looked at the data and said, what is the data to support it? You know, and, and when I say anecdotal at best, I wouldn't even have made an anecdotal conclusion from, from that. In July of 2018, the FDA made their first statement. What was that statement stating, and, and what are they investigating now? If you actually read it for what it's worth, and obviously they tend to do long, drawn-out press releases, which, you know, for most people, uh, it's good reading to make you fall asleep. But to paraphrase what they actually had there is it was simply a, a statement saying, hey, it's been brought to our attention that there might be an increased incidence of DCM. Uh, we're asking all veterinarians out there to start reporting in DCM cases, and more importantly, go through the FDA portal where they can actually capture all the information. So, A, they know it's true and it's an actual consumer what they're feeding, and more importantly, they could go back to the veterinarian and say, what diagnostics did you run to confirm that it was DCM and not another heart-related disease, because there are others. Mm -hmm. And so from that, they were simply looking for a population to see, does something truly exist? Unfortunately, for those who simply read the headline, they look at FDA investigating heart disease tied to grain-free foods, which technically, yeah, that is it. But there was no conclusion. There was no evidence. They were saying, okay, well, we got this veterinary group out there that is saying there's an issue. Well, we need to investigate it to see if there is an issue. The unfortunate thing is because the BAG acronym was already coined and being used at that point, everything focused on boutique, exotic, and grain-free, where in actuality, the FDA should have said, hey, we're understanding there's a rise in DCM cases. Any and all DCM cases should be reported into the portal. And if they would have done that, A, they would have a better group to say, hey, it's really a grain-free issue or a grain issue or whatever. But being that they asked for that because it was anecdotally talked about being grain-free, consequently, you get biased data coming in. But the thing that was intriguing uh, with the most recent update and announcement is even though they only asked for grain-free, still 10% of those cases, 11% of those cases were grain-based foods. Mm -hmm. And so when you asked for DCM slash grain-free and you're still getting grain products in, it's going to tell me if you asked for everything, you probably would have seen, you know, an even balanced or a better blend of data so you could actually get to the root cause. The portal process of collecting the data that you're talking about, it's different than how it works for humans, right? It's similar, um, but it's different in the aspect of with the FDA CVM, um, and you see it more times with pet food products, is they tend to, and, and a lot of people don't believe me when I say this, especially the conspiracy theorists out there, pet food's more regulated than human food. That's just a fact. Mm-hmm. If you go back and you look at you know, the romaine lettuce that had E. coli or even the turkey that had salmonella, the CDC and the FDA never recalled any of that. They said, be careful. If they go out and they do uh, what I call surveillance, they'll go to a store to buy a product and they'll see if salmonella is present or listeria. And if they find it present, 
they call you up and they say, you're having a recall. So they're out there proactively looking for it in pet food where obviously they're not on, on our side. But what the CVM and FDA do is they work with veterinarians collectively as well as consumers so they can identify issues and things that are going on. And so a great example is the vitamin D toxicity issue that Hills had the beginning of the year. Mm -hmm. That wasn't found until uh, FDA started getting complaints in and confirmation and all that stuff from veterinarians. And then obviously they started an investigation and they found the root cause. So the FDA and Center of Veterinary Medicines, the acronym for CVM, they're very proactive in following up and doing the due diligence and stuff like that, especially if they believe there might be something going on. But at the same time, just because a couple people says it's true doesn't mean it's true. Yeah. And that's why uh, they're obligated to investigate. Gotcha. Gotcha. So, but it's the collection as a whole, the CDC, like for humans, for diseases, they're more involved in the medical practices to collect the data from what I understand then more so like the FDA and the CVM for pet food they're asking the input from all the veterinarians through the portal typically they draw a faster conclusion uh, than the CDC will great example of is with that whole turkey outbreak yeah the two pet foods that were actually involved in that turkey problem that had I think it was salmonella they were actually recalled they don't mention that in, or those two lots, I should say. They were actually recalled. But all the other turkey that the CDC was tracking that was human-grade, human-edible, none of that never got recalled. And so they, for whatever reason, I don't know why, either they don't have the resources to track it down all the way down to the farm or whatever, but, you know, at least on our pet food side, we have very good traceability, trackability, and we can tell you, where the peas came from based off a of lot code coming in, uh, based off of what foods they went in and what foods went out and ultimately to your store. So if somebody from your store happens to get sick and they report it in through the FDA portal, that'll kick off an investigation, which investigation is usually involves depending on the severity of it, uh, it could be the FDA going to that plant and seeing what's going on, mm -hmm. or it, it could be them uh, checking formulas. It could be whatever. And what they'll do is they'll investigate it. They'll ultimately try to identify the, the root cause. Um, you know, great example was back in the day, you know, when Diamond had the salmonella issue. And, you know, to my knowledge, that was the first time they ever did DNA fingerprinting from salmonella and tracked it all the way back to whatever plant it came from. So that tells you how they dive into it and they take it seriously. Not that they don't take human food as serious, but generally speaking, the only time you see a recall is, you know, if it's a, an allergen in a food it shouldn't be or something mm -hmm. like that. But on a pet food side, you, you know, they're definitely out there proactively looking and doing it. And not because it's a mischievous industry. It's just because they're they're out there for multiple reasons. And it's not just the pet, right? It's also for human interaction with the pet because the reality of it is, is that kid's going to feed that food to the dog. You know, you might have a baby crawling on the floor and your first kid, it won't happen. Second kid, it won't happen. Third kid, you tend to get a little lenient. You know, you don't put all the safety plugs in the outlets and, you know, you might see your kid with the dog toy in its mouth. Um, and so the reality of it is, is they're out there proactively looking for both the animal and the human. And so when people get upset that, hey, this dog food company has or raw food company has listeria or E. coli in there, yeah, the dog might be able to handle it. Some compromised immune systems can't handle it, but they're really also looking out for who's going to be feeding it and where they're going to be feeding it. And so they tend to be a little more thorough on our side of the industry line, if you will. On the pet food side. Yeah. With the past year and what the FDA has been investigating and looking at, they released another statement at the end of June of 2019 here. Where have they gotten so far and what do we know based on their, their latest statement? So um, those of you that are interested in reading my article on PetFoodIndustry.com, you can see the longer version of what I'm about to say, but the answer is nothing. Um, 
Long story short, you know, 500 plus cases came in. It definitely wasn't all, you know, if you look at the acronym BEG for boutique, exotic, proteins, and grain-free, boutique is definitely not there. Many of the foods that you saw are available at Petco's, PetSmart's, Food Drug Mass, as well as independent slash boutiques. Boutiques was more for a label that was smaller companies or sold at stores like your own. Yeah. Which is a huge misnomer and definitely got disproven in in that data set. You know, I'm not going to mention names of companies, but if you look at the bar charts, you know who's available at the grocery store and and who's not and who's available at PetSmart Petco and who's not. And a number of boutique brands, I could probably count on one, maybe two hands. And then when you look at exotic proteins, again, that's another misnomer. Uh, because chicken was the number one protein that came out with the foods and almost at 20% by itself. If you look at what I'll call the quote-unquote normal proteins like chicken, uh, beef, lamb, fish, uh, they were roughly 75% of the cases. Uh, 24% were quote-unquote exotics, and one was actually uh, a vegan food. Um, which that one that was a vegan food, again, I can count all of those instances on one hand. So, you know, it was predominantly normal or conventional protein sources is how we would refer to it in industry. And then when you get into grain-free, again, it goes back to my original statement. When you put out a request only for grain-free foods, well, I expect that to be a bump on there. But at the same time, 10% of them were grain-based foods. And so from that standpoint, to me, it's a misnomer, and it's based off of, hey, you know, you asked for bias data, you got bias data. Um, again, it should be all DCM cases should re- be reported, not just a subset of them. Because if it is nutrient-related, which I believe if there is anything going on, it probably is, whether it's too much fiber or the dog's not consuming enough kibble or, or protein in the day, even though they're eating the right food, they might not be eating enough protein or if it's digestibility even, you wouldn't be able to find that out just looking at a subset of the data. You would have to look at the data set as a whole. And then maybe what you find out is, you know what, those smaller breeds that are all of a sudden are popping up, maybe they don't digest food as well as some of the other breeds. And, you know, there's data out there by certain companies that show you that large breed dogs are less efficient at in, uh, converting amino acids over to taurine. Well, if that's the answer and they're not good at digesting, well, that's the answer. It's not a grain-free food is the problem. It's, hey, you know what? They're not making enough and it might not be digestible enough for them. Um, and that might be what you're seeing in, in the data. And so long story short, even though they made a bar chart of 16, I'll call it brands, uh, they they misrepresented the data in that because if you actually look at it, there is no trends within that data. Um, and I'll use Acana as an example because they show up as number one. If you actually go and you look at their data, if there was a problem with their food, and I'll use pork and squash as the example because that's one of the ones that was anecdotally labeled in the beginning of, of all of this. Um, when you look at the Acana, you would expect them to be nothing but pork and squash. Well, it's not. It's a little bit of this, a little bit of that, a little bit of that one, this one, that one. And there's no consistency in the data. If you look at all the other ones, it's exactly the same way. And so if there was a problem and it was truly bag or truly grain-free, you would definitely see it prevalent in one or two of the flavors within the brand. Basically, what we take away is that all of the reported cases, even though there was a heightened awareness around certain formulas that no particular brand specifically has been shown to be causing the DCM issues, even though the ones that have been highlighted. And if you think about how much uh, animals eat grain-free foods today, dogs in yeah. particular, um, right? You, you know, we all know natural took off. Nat, the natural segment, for argument's sake, isn't all growing that much, but grain-free is, and it's gobbling up the natural segment. If you think of all the animals that are out there, and if there was a problem, uh, which I'm not saying there's not, but if there was a serious problem that scientifically could be proven, there would be a ton more data in there. And more importantly, you would see particular spikes in there, right? So 
if kangaroo, for example, was truly the problem, and I think it showed up in 9.3 of the cases, again, if somebody's only looking for exotic proteins, they're going to report them, where others reported all protein sources. Well, I would expect if kangaroo's the problem, you would have saw the same issue you did back in the day with lamb and rice before people started adding taurine to it, right? It was like it was a huge problem. People corrected it, and they moved on. Well, you're not seeing that here. And many of the foods already have taurine and carnitine in them. So it's telling me that there's a heightened awareness to look into DCM, and you're probably seeing what is probably the norm. Unfortunately, there's no concrete data on there. As of today, if you take away that bar graph that's on that FDA update and you actually read what they say, they have nothing. They know they have nothing, and that's why they say we're continuing to look and and analyze the nutrients and digestibility of the data because the data they have literally doesn't show anything. So then the concern that we have for DCM in our pets is like a very, very small percentage. What would you like to see as far as, you know, the further research into this? You know, first and foremost, if, if your dog's showing any of the symptoms, go to the vet regardless. You know, your dog's not acting normal you know, you take them. Uh, I do. It doesn't even have to be DCM related. But if somebody's going to run a real controlled study to demonstrate that it is or isn't that, for example, and I'll just do a a grain-free versus grain example, I would want to make sure that the carbohydrate content is exactly the same in both foods as well as protein and fat. And more importantly, I would want to see are the fiber levels the same and more more in particular soluble fiber because soluble fiber is known to prevent recycling and upcycling of taurine from the bile acids. There's studies on that that are actually controlled studies. And then also I would want to make sure the total starches are the same. And so in the grain-free foods, you tend to see a lot of purified starches in the food, potato starch, pea starch, as well as tapioca starch. In the grain foods, you tend not to see that. You usually see whole grains like barley, wheat, corn, whatever. So if I'm going to do a controlled study, you know, I would want to do corn starch, for argument's sake, is the same amount as pea starch. Wheat starch is the same amount as potato starch. And then, or, you know, the starch group is equal to that starch group. Mm -hmm. And then probably do a traditional grain food, if you will that it just has corn, whatever, the carbohydrates are balanced, but you're not necessarily worried about the starches and the fibers. Because then you could learn really quick, A, is it a grain-free issue or is it a grain issue because of the starch balancing and fiber balancing? Because if those two behave the same, then the answer tells you no. And then if the intact grain version performs better than both of them, then it tells you, hey, you might have a purified starch issue going on, and that's why you're seeing it happen more in the dry kibble because it's a processing issue, not an ingredient issue, because those starches in theory would behave the same going through the cook process versus an intact grain. Um, And those are the proper studies that uh, a scientific institution would run. For example, you know, University of Illinois or K-State, they would run those types of studies. There's lots of questions that pop up that if you're a nutritionist, you focus on. So I don't focus on percent of protein in the food or percent of carbohydrate in the food. I focus on grams of intake for that animal for that day. And so if I know for argument's sake they're going to always consume five grams of protein every day or five grams of a precursor for taurine, I know I'm, I'm fine with that food where somebody who's not familiar with formulation or doing that, they're just going to simply look at a percentage and say, oh, you want to go high percent protein in that food. High percent of protein doesn't mean it's a high quality food. It just means it's a high number. You actually mentioned like a really important part is that there's areas of quality when looking at a pet food where you have the area of formulation, you have the actual processing of creating the kibble, all of that together. So how would you recommend people, you know, make their own evaluation or what they look for in good quality kibbles or, or, or pet foods in general? I can tell you transparency is key. We're relaunching uh, my own company's website where you will actually see what my typical analyzed nutrients are for everything AFCO-related. But more importantly, I'm going to be putting out there what my digestibility results are of my tests. 
right? And so a lot of this could come down, like I said before, is, okay, well, what's the value and what's the digestibility? Because then from there, if you know that, hey, your dog should be eating, and, and my, my feeding guidelines is going to be based off of calories, which assumes which everybody's in theory should be, mm-hmm. but it gets to ensuring you're getting that grams of intake for that animal, right? But by design, by doing that, you, you're going to make sure that animal is getting that nutrition, and in certain nutrients, you want to make sure they get a little extra because in case they're you know finicky eater or what have you, to make sure none of those issues are going on. But if you call up a company and you ask them for argument's sake, what's your taurine level in your food and what's your digestibility of your food, and they go, hey, that's proprietary, no, it's not because I can, you can, for a you know, couple thousand dollars, send it to a facility and get it tested and run it through dogs and get a digestibility report back. Uh, if it was proprietary, the data wouldn't be easy for me to get. It would be a trade secret and hence proprietary, uh, like a formula. That would be proprietary. Gotcha. Uh, the nutrients would not be because anybody could send it to a Silica or a Midwest Labs or Eurofins or New Jersey Feed Labs or whoever and say, tell me what the methionine level of this food is. Obviously, you send a sample in, you send your money, and in a week or two, you get a number. Uh, so there's nothing proprietary to that. And obviously, um, you know, you just got to be truth to yourself about what you're feeding. Are you believing the hype of Dr. Google on the Internet? Or do you have data to back it up? And, you know, this is where the careful threading of emotional versus logical thinking comes through. Um, Because many people that feed their pets, mine included, you don't want to think you're doing bad by your animal. And so right or wrong, people think of their dogs, cats as kids because you are their caretaker. And you don't want to think that you're inflicting pain or malnutrition or whatever on there. And so sometimes people get locked into the emotional debate versus the, wow, I was wrong and I can fix this. Uh, Most of the things nutritionally related are fixable if you catch the symptoms in, in, in time. But if you're looking at a new food, right, they can always ask you, they can ask whoever, um, and you guys are going to know, okay, who's the transparent people? Have I gone on a tour at their facility? Have I, you know, uh, when I call them to ask a question, you know, do I get ghosted? Uh, Do they not respond? Or they go, hey, you know, there was a great example of when we were doing competitive intelligence for our product that, that we were launching. We called other, quote, unquote, competitors, and we said, hey, can you tell me? this and three days later they responded to us and said well we can but the guy's out of the office well what does that have to do with answering the question you don't have that on a database or your customer service sheet or more importantly on your website so i don't even have to call and so you know it's some of that stuff where you know where companies talk about transparency and things of that nature it's like well why aren't you putting your typical nutrient analysis there nobody's going to sit there and go hey, you know what, you told me methionine's typically 1.2 and I analyzed 1.1. Nobody's going to bash you for that because the answer is analytical variation and manufacturing variation because chances are I'm probably going to get a 1.4, right? But if you had that information out there to do it, the consumer or the vet or whoever can make logical uh, conclusions and have those conversations instead of going back to what they were fed in vet school by whatever company was either supporting them or supporting their vet school at the time. I, I think, you know, it's one of those deals that right now, you know, great example is there was an opinion paper wrote in a, a Journal of American Veterinary Medical uh, Association, and it was written by Dr. Freeman and a few other people. A lot of people don't realize in the veterinary community that was not a peer-reviewed paper. That was an opinion paper somebody sent in. It was commentary. It was in. It got sent out. It's impressed. It's actually on their website. Well, what data is there really to support this? Mm-hmm. And, you know, if you go back to your original discussion about 2018, June, July, when the FDA said, well, where's the data to support it? That's what the FDA is trying to do. They're trying to say, okay, well, you say that. Well, where's the data to support it? It's, uh, you know, the old adage I you do with your training your puppy. I smell the poop. Where's the poop? Right. In this case, it's, you know, where's the poop? And there's no poop. 
and that's why the FDA keeps on investigating. The reason their report came out when they did is because a lot of veterinarians, as well as others, obviously they're, uh, they serve the public, so Freedom of Information Act. So they had to, at some point, give an update. Unfortunately, they made a crappy bar graph. Um, and if you actually look at the raw data that they supplied, you'll see Hills on there, their brands, even one of their therapeutics. You'll see Mars. You'll see uh, Lotus. You'll see a lot of others. And when other people have that are on there, it's hard to draw a conclusion on there. Right. Summarize what you're saying, and you can correct me if I'm not accurate here. Basically, of all the, the 500 or so cases that were collected, mostly over the time frame of the last year between the FDA's June 2018 yeah, statement. Semi-data or, until, yeah. uh, eight, until April, I think, is what their cutoff was. So I'd expect there, there'll be some other update at some other point, and that's why you have other veterinarians out of other universities that are challenging it and saying, well, you should be sending in all DCM data, not just, quote-unquote, um, beg ones. In the instances where there are dogs that are showing symptoms and stuff, let's say we do have a dog who the veterinarian's saying, hey, there's symptoms here. They do the test, confirm that it's got DCM. What should we be doing on our end so that we can aid the vet in their report and, and that can be added to the investigation by the FDA? Yeah, so certainly you could go on um, the FDA reporting portal, let your veterinarian know you're going to do it, obviously, and that you're giving them the approval to release the information. So when they go on there and they start filling it out, and you don't have to fill it out completely, you can fill out with the information you know, confirmed DCM case, uh, here's my vet clinic. You know, you don't even have to know the gobbly gook that they did. But if you answer most of it and you say, hey, here's the veterinarian that it was, and I gave them approval to talk to you, then that gives the veterinarian green light to do it. And obviously, they don't have to call you as the pet owner and start asking you questions that you don't have a clue about. All you're going to hear is DCM and treatment and get off of this food and go on to that food, which you should, unless you, you geek out on the stuff like I do, then you might understand it. Or like yourself and myself, we have uh, wives that are nurses, and then they'll geek out on it. But if you don't know, you fill it out as much as you can, uh, you give the veterinarian information in that when you submit it, and then you could submit in your information. Obviously, they will reach out to you. They'll reach out to the vet, um, and that'll start the dialogue. And if you look at to get you an idea of what they're going to be looking for, if you go on when they did their press release, and it's one of the kind of the hidden tabs, if you will, to get access to that PDF. But if you go to the article I wrote for Pet Food Industry, You'll see the link in my article because I made it easier for people to get to. You'll see what they're going to ask. They're going to ask you what's the breed, what's the age, what's the sex, uh, what's the food. Okay. Um, you're definitely going to have to know what the food is. You know, you might not remember the lot number uh, because a lot of people with dog food have a tendency to, if they have a big bag, dump it into a bin and throw the bag out. But know what you're feeding your animal. You know, you, if, if you simply call in and go, well, I feed a mixture of, I'll just say blue and from, so blue dry and from wet, you're going to get reported in a column that if you look at the dry kibble, wet, and mixture, you'll get reported as a mixture. Um, you might not show up in in their data set because you you don't know what you're feeding. Or you might just say it's grain-free and you don't even know it's whatever the brand is. So it's important for you to know what brand that you're you're feeding as well. And then if you look in the last column, you'll see uh, the information that they're using to confirm, is it truly a DCM case or is it some other case? And so they'll ask questions um, to rule out other heart diseases based off ultrasounds and things of that nature. Um, and then they'll probably ask you if you've done a taurine blood analysis to know if it's low, middle, or high. You know, And they're just trying to collect as much data as they can. They might even ask you to um, send in a sample of your food so they can analyze it from a nutritional standpoint as well, especially if you have the food on hand. Uh, one of the things I always tell people, and you know, I'm bad at it uh, as well, is um, if you do dump it into the bin, you should always cut out the section on your bag that's the UPC or lot code until you're done with that bin. Because regardless of whether it's a DCM case or let's say there's just a recall on your food and they report a lot code, 
how are you going to know that, you know, you have the affected lot code? And so, you know, even though it's nice and easy to dump the bag, people should get in the habit of cutting that UPC and lot code out. So, you know, God forbid, you know, they do have a recall and you're only halfway through that 30-pound bag. Well, you deserve reimbursement. You deserve to know does your dog have the potential to get salmonella or whatever else? Or from that standpoint, uh, they should always keep track of that information, cut it, put it on the side if they are in the habit of dumping it into the bin because it's easier to scoop. In relation to human food, the fact that we can save a UPC for the entire meal of the pet, or if you mix like maybe freeze-dried and, and uh, a kibble diet, a couple UPCs and you have the pet's entire diet, and then you have the traceability from there so that as you said, God forbid something happens to your pet or a recall happens while you're feeding it. I mean, if you know the root cause of something, you can troubleshoot it and problem solve and your vet can provide, you know, the necessary treatment uh, a lot faster than, you know, if you were to go to the doctor and you say, oh, what have I been eating? Well, you know, I had a meal with six different portions the other day. In one nugget, there's the full complexity of a meal. It's a, it's a baby food. Yeah. You've got to supply everything like for a baby formula. And a lot of people tend to forget that. Um, you know, your, your, your dog doesn't have the ability, or at least most of them don't, um, to open up a fridge. I'm trying to teach mine how to do it and grab me a beer. Hasn't worked yet. No, not yet. <laughs> uh, with, with all three of my rescues, uh, you know, I figured they get, you know, one of the cool genes in there, but they, they haven't yet. We're working on it. But um, they don't have the ability to go in and say, hey, I'm craving salt, so I'm going to open a cupboard and eat some potato chips, or I have a muscle cramp, and you know what, I'm going to go eat a banana and get some potassium in me. They, they don't have that ability. And so very much like a baby formula, you have to supply everything uh, in a 100% complete and balanced formula. And that, and when I say balanced, that means you have to make sure the nutrients that are in there aren't antagonizing. So, hey, if I if I bump up this, uh, you know, it might make this lesser available or anti-nutritional factors in there that might make something less available or, you know, other things that might be going on in that uh, mask deficiencies, right? And a great example I always use is, is uh, folate and B12, right? They have very similar deficiencies, but if I bump up folate, I can mask a B12 deficiency. doesn't mean I'm not having problems with B12, but it might not show up in the traditional, you know, symptom hallmark signs that you would do. You'd have to investigate it further. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, same thing with carnitine and taurine. Uh, they behave very much the same way. A carnitine deficiency can cause DCM. Um, and so... You know, it's it's one of those deals that just like with baby formulas, you got to take into account everything and the checks and balances. And so you can't say a bunch of this is really good because it might be really good, but it might bring another nutrient in at, at a detriment. You know, as complex as the kibble is, we get the convenience of serving it like baby food, but we're also getting the traceability, hand that information right over to your vet. Then you mentioned how much the FDA actually is involved in monitoring and regulating and ensuring the the general safety of the public with the foods that were out there. And it doesn't take much for them to uh, investigate or inspect. And so the nuance between that is um, investigation usually involves the corporate world, right? You're not manufacturing anything on site. Um, So you'll hear nuances when they investigate a company. It usually means they're going to all aspects of that company, corporate, look at documents, as well as the plant. Typically, when they do inspections, those are only plant-driven. So, hey, are you doing all the good manufacturing practices that you're supposed to be doing, everything else? And um, a lot of people don't realize that um, when the Food Safety Modernization Act went into play however many years ago, um, you know, that's no different for pet food. We have to follow all those same uh, rules and obligations and documentation and everything else. Um, when the Bioterrorism Act went into play however many years ago, uh, pet food had to do the same thing. Um, and to oversimplify that, it's, you know, I call it the one up, one down. I need to know where my ingredients come from, and I need to know where my finished good goes to. And the guy that I'm getting the ingredients from, he has to do the same thing. And so you have that, uh, you know, chain of command or custody, however you want to look at it, that's all linked together that in theory – um, you know, you could figure out what little farm gave it to the 
you know, the, the broker and who the broker gave the, the, you know, all that poundage to, and then all that poundage went into whatever pet foods and then whatever, uh, stores it, it went to or distributors, depending on, you know, how you, you sell your product. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's, you know, and that's required, uh, you know, down to the standpoint of, uh, when you do a recall too. So if I have to do a voluntary or non-voluntary, um, typically non-voluntary means you, you don't believe the FDA and so they make you do it. Um, but otherwise it's all voluntary. Uh, right. Um, but you have to show them how you told all the people that bought your product that there is a recall and you also have to show them how much you recover back. Now, obviously you're not going to recover everything because usually in your statement you say, take it back to the store or throw it out. So, you know, there's a percentage there, but you know, people obviously they want to get a hundred percent, but you know, they're not going to get it. But usually when a recall goes into uh, effect, you're not hearing about any more animals getting sick on that product or even if there was a chance of it, even if like a case of plastic piece gets in there, right? You don't hear about this dog choked on a plastic piece. That stuff just doesn't happen. It seems with the traceability now required that it puts more rigor on everything, but also, you know, increased safety and, you know, issues are addressed quickly and the prevalence of issues doesn't happen. Yeah, they're very proactive. Yeah. Um, and, and the other thing, too, is uh, a lot a lot of people don't realize is um, FDA will also come if they're going to investigate. And let's say they're let's say DCM was real um, and it's tied to company X. Well, the first thing they're going to do is they're going to say, well, company X, we see food A is causing the issues. So we definitely know it's food A. And, hey, here's a cause and effect. They're going to go, okay, based off your customer service records, have you any, had any complaints tied to your food that caused DCM? Um, and that's another way to double check to see if that data is coming in and if that company's being honest. Obviously, you know, they have to share that data and keep rec- good records of that coming in. Um, and so they they do their due diligence. Um, and if they had a smoking gun, they would have reported one. Um, unfortunately, uh, as I stated earlier, you know, people like pretty charts. Um, you know, when I was in a corporate world, uh, senior management, myself included, never wanted the details. They wanted a pretty chart. All right. And um, when you see it, that's how it gets reported. And so unfortunately, it got reported as 16 brands got are associated with DCM, and that shouldn't have been the headline um, because, it, they A, they weren't all brands. Some were listed as companies. Um, but the, the reality of it is is if they would have read the article, they would have said the FDA has no idea what it is, and they're still investigating. Mm-hmm. Um, and all you got to do is read a little further down, and they tell you that they're looking at nutrients and digestibility, absorption, all that other stuff. Um, and chances are they're probably not going to find anything either because uh, I, I don't believe it's there, at least in a data set there. Um, and that's important, you know, is, again, if there's heightened awareness for DCM with veterinarians, they should diagnose it properly and they should report them all. This is really helpful for us to, you know, really understand what what was the initial concern, what's the ongoing progress that's been made looking into it. Um, what we can do as consumers to one ensure that if if anything were to happen to our pet, you know, by keeping our UPCs, we can easily find the root cause or or ensure even that might not be related to you know what's going on with the pet. It it could simply be you know for argument's sake if it's a diarrhea issue or something like mm-hmm. that. It, it's it's good practice to keep those UPC and lot codes just in general um, because you. A, you never know what you don't know. You know, there there could be a recall at some point. You want to know, are you impacted? Uh, your animal might get sick. Um, and, you know, if you want to report it back to the customer service at the company and you're looking for a refund or just to let them know, they're going to ask that information. And if you want to report it to the FDA, they're going to ask that information as well. Um, as you could imagine, I'll use the vitamin D recall as a recent example if they didn't have lot codes and stuff to go back on, how are they going to be able to track it down and start narrowing it down or, in that case, broaden it out 
um, based off of, hey, they were able to track it down to a particular vitamin mineral premix that came from uh, DSM supplying to them, and then they were able to broaden it out to, to do it. So in, in that case, obviously, um, they went with a wide net to prevent any more animals getting sick based off of that premix going in. But if you don't have that lot code and that information, it makes it a little harder for them to do an in- investigation. Uh, once you have that information and you could supply it then they can run through it and chase it down really quick um and and most reputable companies will be tracking uh incidences even within their portfolio based off of lot codes and months and stuff like that did we get a spike in diarrhea um you know if the answer is no it's not above the norm well you know what they're not going to look into it and the fda is not going to look into it because you know reality of it is um a lot of people want to blame food but you know what i leave the trash can open from time to time and you know my dogs are notorious for catching rabbits and other stuff and rolling around and stuff they shouldn't most people want to blame food because that's the only thing they should be eating but you know as well as i do uh, they like appetizers out of the cat litter box, um, which I don't know why. I don't know if it's the clay or the or the the fecal matter, but you know people tend to forget that stuff. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that's why it's important to keep lock codes and stuff like that because um, somebody will investigate it and look at it from a practical standpoint to see if there's, a, you know, and and when I say a trend, uh, I'm not talking like twenty or thirty. It could be two of the same lot code with the same issue um and and they'll jump at it uh, you know they're they're good at that or at least putting a call in and you know following up and seeing what's going on well you know i think that leaves us with uh you know more confidence in when we're selecting our food and then also you know we'll be waiting for the fda to hopefully draw a conclusion in the near future um as they continue their investigation and thank you so much for joining us hey no problem Thank you all for listening. For notes from this episode, visit the podcast section of our website at mackeysgrows.com. Also, we'd love to hear your topic ideas or questions. So shoot us an email at podcast at mackeysinc.com. That's P-O-D-C-A-S-T at M-A-C-K-E-Y-S-I-N-C.com. And you'll also be entered into our grab bag prize drawing. If you found the information in this podcast useful or simply enjoyed our chat, we truly appreciate it. If you could leave a rating and review on your listening app, whether it's iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to your podcasts, it helps us share our show with others. And honestly, it helps us get more guests as we meet and invite interesting people on our show. So thanks again. And until next time, remember where that is in which you love, that's home. Mackie's, where the home grows. <laughs>